0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes. As you know, we love to play the finest in indie pop. But we also love a special guest this week. It is going to be the turn of the drummer, Patty Schemel, who was in various bands, including Dull Squad, and also in the early '90s Hole alongside Courtney Love, and has had various musical adventures and lots of life experiences ever since. So this is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was those early musical influences. Patty, it's over. To you.
1: Mid-70s, it was 8, like AM radio for me, but, but they played Bowie, and that was, like, fame and, you know, Young Americans. And, like, that was what, like, when I heard David Bowie on, on the radio, that's what, there was something to it that was a little bit different that made me just kind of perk up, you know, so listen in and, like, want to pursue, like, what's find out more. Yes. Um, and um, the, and then I liked all of that, like, you know, 70s rock, like, you know, the t- the typical uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, cream and stuff like that. Um, but, and what, where I grew up was a little town and there wasn't, you know, it was in Washington state up n- north. And what... you know, all I had was TV, so, and barely, you know, like seven, not even that, like four channels or something, but my introduction to, like, some really amazing things was, you know, like, Saturday Night Live had Bowie on, and he came out um, with Klaus Nomi and Joey Arias, and did Boys Keep Swinging, I think, and then TVC15, and that was, like, mind-blowing, like, just these little bits of exposure of, weird things that I could find and search for were that I knew that there was that was my thing you know that was my I was I wanted to find out more and I wanted to be connected because David Boy's wearing a dress you know I think it was actually a like a woman a, a female like a Royal Air Force Army woman's uniform I don't know it looked good it really yes.
0: did <laughs> I know.
1: so that was just a moment in time that you Know there was like a few of those kind of moments where because I knew I was gay, you know, and then that was the other thing. Um, I just felt different, and when and I and music that um artists that were like David Bowie, I felt connected to like, oh, he's that's my those are my people,
0: yes. Yeah. Well, I can remember the boys keep swinging because I remember at the end, I think he he. Pulls his arm, wrist across his face, and smudges his his um, lipstick. And I, yeah. I, I think I don't know if he'd done that on every performance, but he did it on top of the pops. And I remember being like, uh-huh. "Interesting." But I, it was it was it was that uh, it was that, I I have to say I was probably about ten and, and was a bit obsessed with my mother's. Um, yeah she had one of those kind of make up table things that you 'd sort of play uh-huh. with and like these little powder things and and there was a picture of him which Mick Rock took the photographer and he was kind of mm-hmm. he 's got that silver um, he's got that silver circle in his forehead. I know it, Yeah, Christ, that was so sexy, and yeah. um, it was just like wow. And so, you could see the guys who were in the suite and Gary Glitter, and they mm-hmm. were just like stocky blokes who obviously just put on makeup, but were real, yeah. you know, you could tell they were just kind of a bit chunky. But Bowie, right, <laughs> he was just a little bit kind of like mm, interesting. But I was only 10 at the time, I mean, I have to say, yeah, but
1: you could tell the difference, kind of, right? Like, the, yes. that you know. Yeah, that the guys in Suite were just kind of putting it on but then and the New York Dolls but then you know there's there's um you know like there's a little more to David that was a little more authentic and
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't think I think with Bowie he never you know, even at a young age you didn't feel that he would want to beat you up for any reason whereas those guys kind of looked a bit like I don't know they yeah. had they also had that weird sort of chest hair stuff which I find quite, quite <laughs> Yeah, a,
1: the cover <laughs> of Desolation Boulevard right is that the the one that has the big hit, the Blitz, uh, Ballroom yeah. Blitz. Yeah. And it, I was interested because in I was like, there's a redheaded guy in here. And I like always felt weird as a redhead, but there was one guy in suite that had red hair. And I was like, Oh, well, I guess it's kind of cool, but not, you know, I always felt <laughs> awkward and weird. And, there, and the guy in suite, thank you for making me feel kind of okay.
0: exactly. I know that's tricky. So, when did you start sort of thinking? Because I never made that transition to actually wanting to play music. I just wanted to listen to it. So, when did you start feeling the urge, or the kind Mm -hmm. of the moment that you thought, "I'm going to go for the drums"? Yeah, I I
1: felt um, always into music all the time, and and um, I. Wanted to play, yeah. I I always wanted to play sports, like with but play on boys' teams, you know, and I couldn't. So, um, one there was a a band that came through like my school for a performance, and there was a girl drummer, a lady, and um, I was immediately drawn to that. Like, that is a she's sitting down and she's doing um she's hitting the drums and it's really powerful and it's uh, not, I don't, I've never seen a woman play like, and so I was drawn to that. And they couldn't tell me when I wanted to play drums. Well, you can't because, you know, it wasn't like sports where they said you can't. So, yeah. so it was, it was um, I was drawn to it because it was an aggressive guy thing as far as I'd seen so far. And then from there um, just, you know, getting my first drum kit and playing along to, you know, just the radio and stuff, and then discovering girls' School and you know the Go Go's and yeah. And, I know. And
0: then I know. So the, many the, more the,
1: women...
0: Yeah, but it's interesting because in that time we, we, you know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it was like the Susie Quattro moment, wasn't there as well in right. the seventies? Uh-huh. I know she was yeah, a drummer, but 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 um, the closest yeah. I'd been was Karen Carpenter, really.
1: Yeah. yeah yeah that' such such a uh, sweet voice and um such a when you see that like all that footage of her playing drums and um she was so she was delicate and it was it they, she was amazing, but also um it, it was just it was pretty and nice and it fit the carpenters, you know, yeah. so you know you could be a lady and play the drums, but I didn't want to, you know
0: no like. Absolutely, but then, um, but interesting yeah. enough, the the carpenters and I, I sort of my parents. I think when they they were getting married, they had to sell everything like their record player and records to get some cash together, and then they bought you know in the sort of probably early seventies they bought a record player and a few records, and one of them was was one of these things called "Top of the Poppers" sing the carpenters. They there was these kind of cover bands do in Top of the Pops numbers. It was quite a weird collection, which has become a bit of a cult item. But I listened mm-hmm. to that Top of the Poppers sing The Carpenters, thinking it was The Carpenters when <laughs> I was 10. And um, I, But then I realised, because yeah. I loved those lyrics, and then I kind of thought, you know, 20 years later, no wonder I loved Joy Division and The Smiths, because it was so depressing. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. those, I say goodbye to love. No one ever seemed to care if I live or die, thinking I was 10 you know, I was I was listening to those songs, and then you know Morrissey and Ian Anderson, uh, Ian Curtis comes along, and you think, oh my god, uh-huh. no wonder. I, I know
1: I would listen to that too, and 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 just you know be alone in my room, and you know, and and think, uh, you know, and feel the same. You know, I, that's how I feel too. Yes, Morrissey.
0: I know. Yeah. Rainy Days and yeah. Mondays yeah. was just kind of amazing. So yeah. so during so as we truck into the eighties now. Yeah. In this country, you know, during the early 80s, you know, things got quite divided and, and also simplistically there was the punk period and there was post-punk and then was an indie mm-hmm. scene. But in the, in the mainstream you had that Trevor Horn sound with, you know, mm-hmm. like Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, yeah. the, the smooth sound of Sade. But then on the other side you right. had all this jangly pop stuff going on. Yeah. That was like the Smiths and, and the June Brides and the Go-Betweens. Right. And then, you know, like, you know, and then slowly you started getting those more noise bands like Sonic Youth big black and the yeah. buttholes so what right. were you what were you listening to in the kind of 80s yeah. period
1: in the in the 80s it was I, all all types of music but mostly I, I loved some new wave but I I, I didn't really talk about it <laughs> but I um I was really into you know like uh Simple Minds and uh Echo and the Bunnymen and I the, I liked hardcore too you know like our our west coast Socal hardcore like Black Flag and that that kind of stuff and that's when I started playing in bands but where I what I loved was you know the early shoegaze stuff like even um, like I found I went to a, a record store and I was like I'd go through and look at the compilations because that way I could kind of find out about new bands and I found this C eighty six record the the gold. uh it's gold, you know the first yes uh, it's the enemy comp the one yes. <laughs> I guess from um eighty six and I got that record and on it was McCarthy, which started me on a whole crazy journey of finding anything McCarthy related and then you know um all and then there was that other compilation called was it Factory? Yeah. That had uh, or something pink flag some and it, it had McCarthy was on it and um so I dove into that and that I loved that pop jingle but that there was sort of like a fuzzy sheen over it and then you know my bloody valentine but that first my bloody valentine record doesn't even sound like my bloody valentine. Yeah. You know the one <laughs> yes,
0: yes, I, I remember sort of getting a twelve inch of that, and it was—I yeah. I think it was on. Oh God, it could have been on Lazy Records, but I might be wrong. Um, yeah. So look, I'm—I'm slightly—I'm really impressed that you got the cassette or the album of the C86. Yeah, the album. So you yeah. got the vinyl. So, yeah. so were you kind of was because in the UK we had something like the gatekeepers. You know, we had people who were mm-hmm. quite important, or certainly like the music press. You had the NME, <sighs> Melody Maker, and Sounds, which were like. They had huge circulations. And then we had a DJ called John Peel who played. Right, I know l-
1: we did Peel sessions. A lot yeah. of
0: very I mean, and and so you could be quite an indie band or just a making an odd sound. And a John Peel session or John Peel play would get you quite a sort of dedicated following or or bass. And then you get a John Peel session, and then that gave you another sort of uh, a, a sort of a leg up the ladder, or something like that. Um, but right. but but the NMEs kind of they they used to do these kind of uh, seven inch singles and then cassettes as well. So the NMEs kind of C eighty six became probably their best known one. Even though at the time they thought, well, this this is going to be probably selling about five thousand. It did much better. Still not huge. Uh-huh. But so so were you? <laughs> so how did you manage? I mean, were you kind of aware of what was going on in the UK? You must have been actually.
1: Well, I always thought it was cooler than what was going on here. Always, like what's going on there is. So that was, you know, always looking at the imports, um, and a lot. Of, all my favorite bands, for, you know, were British. But um, the I remember on that that C eighty six. Remember the Fuzzbox song. Oh
0: my God, we loved it. We've got a Fuzzbox, oh. we have got to use it. I think it was console yeah.
1: console me. Oh, that's yes. I think and then um the, I I know that the McCarthy song was called Celestial City I think.
0: Celestial City right. indeed it was. Yeah. Well and then that
1: like from it was so it, talking about having a musical journey it started at you know there was many different you know journeys of you know certain types of music but for in this specific situation it was finding this record looking at all these bands and then having that world open up so starting with mccarthy you know and then going who is this where are they from Who? what bands are connected right so then you what bands do they listen to and then just desperately trying to find you know there it wasn't like i could get a mccarthy record you know and i think our like local college station had one um it was like that they had a full length right uh it's a I can't remember, but I couldn't find it anywhere. Um, but it, that was, you know, how you you find a, a label or a, yes, know, a God, and then you Absolutely. just
0: go there. You yes, know?
1: and then the world opens up. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean the the world of uh, I suppose it was very I don't know it might be now I'm just going to be like an old person who doesn't understand what's happening in music anymore. But but back in those days it was very tribal and actually there were certain record labels that you just would buy anything that came out on that label because you knew there was going to be a sound like like you mentioned shoegaze and there was there was a label yeah. that started called Creation. Yeah, there was Creation. Yeah. There was there was also another quirky one called Sarah Records, and then there was all these other ones like. Um, the pink label on the 53rd and 3rd yeah, records. Yeah,
1: that was... The Pink
0: label had the other compilation with McCarthy on it, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That yes.
1: compilation is amazing.
0: It is, yes, because they had McCarthy was their main band, as well as the June Brides and oh, various, right. um, various other bands. So, yes, so so we, Indie Kids, but it's interesting what you said about looking across the pond and, and thinking uh-huh. everything, because we did the same, because you know, I mean, we even if you didn't really want to like Lydia Lunch, you like Lydia Lunch if you are in the UK, because you just Thought she was cool, and you thought uh-huh. her, her poetry was amazing. But you, you know, but we weren't, you know. But if she came from Norwich, we'd have gone, no, that's rubbish. But I think uh-huh. there, there was something about tracking somebody down the other side of the pond or whatever, uh-huh. but, um, and thinking, yeah, I've just discovered some amazing poet, and she looks fantastic in black and um yeah so i think there is that element of enjoying you know when you're young exploring and finding something quite obscure and thinking i've discovered a new world right that's right yeah. that's one of my theories i don't know i might be wrong but <laughs> <laughs> but i'm really i mean your 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 memory for indie pop which is incredibly Quite obscure, you know. Not many people could. I could have that conversation with many people in the world. So I'm, I'm sort of yes. I'm really impressed because, because sometimes no, when, cause when you, um, when one hears, I don't know, Brandon Flowers from the Killers, he always mentions indie indie pop, but then he mentions the most obvious bands like. The Cure and The Smiths and Joy, oh, the yeah. Joy Division, yeah. you know, and you think, yeah, right. I mean, that's that's good, but that's not McCarthy and we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and right. stump and, and uh, bog shit.
1: <laughs> oh, and then of that Petrol Emotion. God, we love loved
0: Steve Mack, didn't we?
1: Right. And then uh, Steve Mack moved to Seattle. I think it was showing up around Seattle, I'd see him.
0: Yes, and I think he's he's probably still there. Cause, yeah, I did, I did an interview. Yes, because he was with the members of um, the Undertones. So as you were going through the eighties, because because a lot of people especially in the early 80s, there was a lot of unemployment and, and un- unemployment was quite easy to claim when you are young in the 80s. So so a lot of people did two or three years and they formed bands and they created a sound which was quite quirky and interesting and John Peel would say "Oh, yeah, we'll give that a play and then they got a John Peel session. So they at least got an album from those years. What was it like in, in sort of America during that time?
1: Yeah, we well it was um, it was, you know, Reagan Ronald Reagan. So uh, it for, for art and underground, it was, it, I remember it being, plus being a teenager and into, um, you know, the, I'd be in the hard, doing hardcore, um, being in hardcore bands and then having lyrics about, you know, but we were kids, so, you know, it was like our, our rebellion was like at our history teacher, you know, at school or something ridiculous, but, um, and then trying to, you know, my introduction to politics was through hardcore and through punk, so, um, discovering um, the political bands, you know, like, or, or what what is Minor Threat talking about? And um, listening and sort of do, trying to figure out what was going on in the world and what these people were doing and what they were saying in their music. So that, um, and then getting conscious and getting politically conscious a bit, you know, um, and um, wanting to be in a band that, said something only because well, for me, my personal feelings were so, um, about being a woman. Like I found so much, um, I found it difficult, you know, there was so much, I didn't see a lot of women playing music except in punk and then finding women to play music with. And then, um, you know, all having similar experiences and, um, you know, and that was how I came up in Seattle was playing, you know, I was in this all girl band called doll squad. And we, uh, um, we played shows and then, you know, played shows that Nirvana that when they first started and mud and meeting, watching those bands play and then, you know, opening for them and, um, and that having that sort of scene was really cool. But still, I have to say, you know, like Seattle, the Seattle scene and the Seattle, you know, the grunge, whole that whole, it was so misogynist. And so, you know, long hair, male guy, beard, rock, no shirt. <laughs> oh That's my lot, god yeah.
0: yes henry henry roland's and his big yes. biceps oh god that was so yeah sc- yeah yeah that was so scary that was definitely not <laughs> david that was definitely not david bowie was it no <laughs> <laughs> christ no i mean yeah. he, he looked like he'd want to nut you in the head um right. i know it's so aggressive so but there was
1: part. yeah there was a part of me that wanted to be tough you know and but um you know i wasn't allowed in that like i wasn't allowed in that tough guy punk hardcore club you know
0: no, oh. blimey. cheesy crazy. Yes, yeah. because um, cause it was around that time. I mean, the interesting thing with punk is that looking back on it, and, and it was a bit scary the other night, there was Top of the Pops had their punk special with all these bands. And actually, they just looked like real blokes who just happened to be in a rock band at the time and suddenly were in a punk band because, you know, and they didn't really have that yeah. much subtlety. And I thought, you know, watching Sham 69 sounded quite... You know, laddish really. Um, but mm-hmm. the the indie scene—it was suddenly very sort of. Every people weren't going to suddenly stop getting beaten up because we were all sort of very fey people who were a bit skinny and a bit um, sort of feared pain really. And um, so, you know, I suppose you know, though Morrissey's become a bit odd. He was, you know, the the lyrics of the Smiths were fantastic, and and then you got a lot of, I suppose, a lot of bands who. You know, like you had the Marine Girls and then you had all these other bands Mm -hmm. on Serra Records, um, like, um, yes, the Field Mice and Amelia Fletcher, who was in various bands. So suddenly it wasn't a very macho scene and, and everyone had a little bit more of an, yeah, it was just a lot softer. There was a lot. And like you said, on the gender politics front, there were a lot more women in it. And it didn't really you didn't have to sort of put one foot on the amp or whatever it was and. Do some weird guitar lick. You could just kind of, Uh yeah. It it just took away all that macho behavior, which was a huge relief. Yeah,
1: I I loved that.
0: Yes, it was. It was kind of fantastic. And then and then obviously, but then I did it. Did you have you ever come across another um, musician called? Is her name Rachel? Cones, who was in the kicking, was a kicking giant. Yes. In need.
1: yeah, I know Rachel.
0: Oh, yeah, so she yeah. she was another you know person I've interviewed, and again you know had a sort of an interesting in you know, upbringing. I think her parents mm-hmm. were quite quite religious. Yeah, <laughs> they had to they had to pray for her. Sort of you know going to some music class. Um, but but uh, yes. So what what I found quite interesting with in, in the um say the eighties and especially. Indie pop, but like the Smiths, I, I kind of put it down. There's a five-year narrative, really, where which is kind of basically the five years of the Smiths from 83 to 87. Then the music scene changed because ecstasy suddenly appeared and suddenly the dance scene appeared with, uh-huh. with like, the Stone Roses and the Happy yeah. Mondays and Primal Scream and the Suit Dragon. So a lot of those bands that had been playing just thought actually we're not going to we've had 5 years in the music business we've kind of fallen out with each other we've made no money and now the music scene has changed and we're we're playing our jingly jangly sound and suddenly everyone wants a ravey sound and and frankly we're going to go and give it up now and and uh-huh. then and that that scene happened and then you had the Seattle grunge scene which came along and i remember John Peel playing Sub Pop 100 that compilation yep. And that mm-hmm. that was like wow. And before that, we'd had Husker Do, which was probably my fav- one of yeah. my favorite bands of the '80s as well. So it was kind of an interesting scene. So when when you started developing that that kind of sound for the the, the first yeah your early '90s and whole did that sort of come together quite quickly or quite easily from
1: in that that sound in Seattle or is it yeah and and
0: well you're the band I suppose oh yeah. Know?
1: Um, Hole specifically? Yeah. Or, well, yeah, um, it it was... Um, when I got in... When I joined Hole, I was... Well, right before it, I was in a band called Sybil. And we sort of had that... Um, sort of a bit of a jangly pop, but with some heavy... We were kind of a mix of those... The heavy and the jangle together. and um, And so we opened, when Hole came t- through Seattle, we opened for Hole. And I remember, um, you know, watching the show and, and thinking it was, you know, ama- great. Uh, and then didn't hear about Hole until they had a sub pop single. And then um, I was called because uh, Courtney needed a drummer through Dylan Carlson. And from Earth and so when I started playing it was I really liked what Carol and their old drummer was doing it was really like they were really that pretty on the inside is such an amazing record for its sort of um, just power and noise and um, it's a, just a cool art record you know and uh, the lyrics are amazing and what Eric is, is becoming as a guitarist and is doing is amazing. Um, so it w- was cool to sort of learn that stuff. That was, um, but they were kind of moving into this more, a little bit more refined. So with, uh, s- instead of just sort of that loose, sort of like wide open, um, I don't know if I'm describing it okay, noise, you know, yes. type of songwriting. So when I joined the band, I brought in maybe a little bit more dynamics to the songs and kind of reined it in a bit, but with, you know, sort of that quiet, loud Pixies idea of songwriting. Um, And um, but Courtney and I connected in a way because she was from Portland, which, you know, in Northwest, we had a lot of similar, um, you know, similar tastes in music and, she was into the, not just uh, she was into some really cool obscure bands. You know, we also shared the our you know taste in like uh, Echo and the Bunny Man and Wire and those bands. So, um, and that's what we wanted to bring into Hole a little bit more of that kind of those things and um, kind of blend it together. Yes. Um, I because, don't know if I answered your question.
0: Yes, no, no, you yeah. did. Because it was interesting, because Courtney, there's just been a book out by Dave Haslam about her eight months in Liverpool, where she hung out with Julian Cope and also um, Paul from The Wild Swans. So obviously that Great. was that was quite a, um, yes, that was very kind of indie pop, really, wasn't it? It wasn't really about sort of m- massive feedback or anything like that.
1: Yeah and she, she yeah we would share that sort of yeah i like you know whatever I- indie pop that it, but also we would both you know maybe have our guilty pleasures band i can't remember off the top of my head what um uh but yeah so there was that and um so when we did we did our first trip to london for we hadn't even recorded any songs for Live Through This. We just got um, Kristen in the band. It was like 93, I think. And we went over, we did a peel session, and we did a cover of Raincoats, The Void.
0: Oh, yes.
1: And we did some, yeah, the sort of early versions of um, whole songs that were on, that eventually became songs on Live Through This.
0: Yes, yeah. and did you? I mean, because you, because I'd seen Nirvana when they came to the Norwich Arts Centre in '89 with 200 other people because they were supporting Tad at the time, which was quite mm-hmm. funny. And I, and bizarrely, <laughs> <laughs> bizarrely, I have got a cassette, a 45-minute cassette of me interviewing the three original members. Oh, with the Chad. With Chad. Chad. I have to yeah. say, Chad was really underwhelmed and walked off halfway through. But you could hear his drumming at the end of the table all the way through it. He seemed quite, oh, yeah. he seemed quite <laughs> bored at the time.
1: <laughs> just so not into
0: it. He was yeah. so not into it. And they just said, oh, don't worry about him. He doesn't really, you know, he's not really into this. Um, so that was fair enough, actually. Anyway, he was quite sweet. Were you, were you quite close? Were you ever, because it was that thing that you might have replaced him on drums
1: Oh yeah, um, there was. I remember that moment in in Seattle where every drummer was um, talking about. Yeah, I was looking for a drummer. Like every, I think drummer I knew was gonna wanted to like audition or try out, and um, I, I was aware of it. And Kurt and I were um, acquaintances, you know, or, but it, I didn't get any kind of like phone call like at all. That I think that got blown out of proportion entirely. And I think you know when they when um chad left i think i think kurt was already had a drummer in mind well no he had danny peters play from mudhoney um which he has a distinct style which and it's really cool you know so when you hear him play when he he did um sliver he played on that was it an ep or a i think you should listen to his style with Kurt is re- really cool. It's a little different. Um, but I, I think they were really set on Dave. They knew that, you know, uh, Dave's existence in the world through Buzz Osborne.
0: So, yes. No. But there
1: was um, Tad. Tad lived in this apartment building with his girlfriend in Seattle. And I was in a band. Like it was kind of like this sort of, I don't know, I think I was really drunk and lost at one point in my life. And it, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I ended up in sort of this weird metaly a little more, it leaned a little more metal than it did um, cool black Sabbath metal. It was anyway, but his, Tad's girlfriend was in the band. And so I'd go over to their apartment and this guy that lived across the hall was Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. So I'd go over there and they'd smoke pot all day and like Lane would come over and he was like this metal guy. And like heavy metal guy with like conch belt and leather and um, but a little hippie vibe. And eventually, like he'd talk about his band and I really, oh they're metal people. I don't uh, I don't know. And then Alice in Chains became kind of a big deal. Yes. I, I, I kind of, and I became a good friend of Lane's and I love that guy. And kind it, not so bad, actually, for a medley band.
0: I know. Oh, that was There was that film called, I think there was a film that came out in the 90s called Clerk by, is it Kevin Smith? And it seemed to have yeah. a very good soundtrack on it. And we all sort of, we all hunted down all those bands that were on it. So um, I think Alice in, was, Alice in Chains was one of those bands, actually.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's a funny one, really. But look, so can, what was your memory? Because you did a of Vale studio session with John, you know, for the John Peel uh-huh. show. Can you remember much about that?
1: Uh, wow! Well, I remember. I I can remember the room. I can remember the songs a little bit. I remember feeling um, like I, I remember feeling like kind of excited that I was doing a Peel session. I mean, that was huge. Yes. for me because um, I would buy peel sessions even in, in the state you know the vinyl and so it was I was trying to like just kind of like get a grip and not be too there was a lot of those moments um, in whole where um, I'd, I'd be in a room you know like doing a peel session and, and kind of quietly freak out because it been like such a big thing for me growing up, and to to be there was so cool, and to like make a, a actual conscious, um, you know, thought that, um, well, I'm doing a peel session, you know, that it was cool.
0: <laughs> yes, well, I know. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you had Dale Griffith, who was the drummer for uh, Mott the Hoople, but I think there was somebody. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You, oh, you did. Yes. Oh, excellent. I cause... think
1: that, because I remember that being some like. To, uh, talked about around, uh, that day. Maybe um, I don't remember like a moment of like actually like shaking someone's hand and saying, "Oh, you're in the moth to the Whoopo guy." Okay. But I think maybe Courtney <laughs> might have said it.
0: You know, yes. uh, I don't know. Because um, I was just yeah. going to say that um, last year there was a film that came out, um, the wedding present, the you know the Leeds based yeah. band. There was a film yeah. that came out about their the making of their album George Best. Now. When they were making that, and as a fan, you know, I didn't, you know, I just thought they made a great sound. But then going into the recording process, a lot of it depends or centres around the relationship of the drummer and Uh the producer. And I I hadn't realised the pressure the drummer is under, actually, until... Well, I did an interview with Lindy, Lindy from the Go Betweens.
1: A huge fan. Who oh, Tran. who, who had a mute. lot,
0: who had a lot of issues and problems with drumming and producers, and also uh-huh. Claire from the Moodists, Claire Moore, uh-huh. who was in the Australian band called the Moodists, and who still uh-huh. plays music with Dave Graney. Um, and and this thing of the the click track and getting uh-huh. it right, and then the pressure and. Uh yeah, Lindy really did struggle with that. I think it probably mm-hmm. kind of did her in, basically, because the producer yeah. said, look, you can listen to this. You can have this without, you know, without her drumming and you'll have a top 10 here, or you'll have the drumming and it will be like this. And she was like crushed by it did you yeah and, th- and then yeah. and there was this whole issue with the wedding present and the drummer and this poor drummer i mean i think he spent 30 years traumatized by that experience because i think he was asked to leave and then the producer got sacked and then the producer came back you'll have to watch the film and cringe yeah. through through um through your fingers as you watch this kind of experience with the poor old drummer so how did you cope with all this pressure yes. the drummer has With um, the-
1: yeah i i went into my band i went into hole feeling like um like a a pretty good drummer you know and like a pretty good drummer in a in a like a in a punk band and, and like just pretty confident when i was young and then um uh as the you know as we started playing more and um I, and I started to see a lot more drummers and I started to realize, well, you know, uh, I have a lot of work to do, you know, I have to. Um, so I would go like have these moments of like a lot of rehearsal and practice by myself. And then um, and then I'd have moments of like not practicing and needing just I would go back. I would really beat myself up a lot between. um because when you you know my dream was to be a you know a drummer in a you know have it be my job you know and when you it just seemed like such a a dream achieved that uh, it was um it was i wanted to hold on to it you know and the work involved I I could do, but, you know, we're practicing and, you know, but there was so much more to it. Not saying I'm not grateful for it It was so such an amazing gift of a time, but the, the, there's other things in play, you know, like that, that battle with, I had a a battle with a producer for, in Celebrity Skin and it was a lot about um, what he wanted it to sound like. And it wasn't, you know, the, the drum parts were mine. And I have to say, I did have a part in that. I, I was like a month out of rehab. So, you know, there you go. That, so that was a huge part of my struggle. And then also, um, you know, the the change that my band was making at that point, which is a little more glossier and professional and arena rock band, right? And they wanted to make their Fleetwood Mac Rumors. And um, so, you know, the producer would like, he would you'll hit the click track and then I got pretty decent at playing to a click track I can do it and if I practice a lot I can get you know better but it just didn't have any I didn't there are drummers that can do it and give it um play to a click and have some kind of soul to it and I just couldn't get there and so having that difficulty then thinking to myself um i'm you know uh i'm a shitty drummer you know and dealing with that um it yeah it tore me up and so there was that point at the end you know after um two weeks of me doing basic basic tracks when the you know producer was like you know you gotta go i'm gonna bring in this guy you know and this like professional johnny one take walks in and does you know the whole record and three days right because that's what he does and then everybody's saying you know patty it's cool you can just um you know we're not going to say anything it's just you know we'll go on tour you'll play these parts this is still you know and i was i couldn't do it i could not go out and say when people talked about like the drum parts on the record i couldn't i couldn't lie about it you know and like carry that around so i said you know screw you guys and i'm out you know um and you know then proceeded to like just blow up my whole life um from there on and you know that dealing with that struggle like oh I I hadn't I hadn't you know felt like a shitty drummer ever
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and well, so, uh, yes. yeah it
1: was a big deal and um but then realizing that you know my whole life was that my whole life was being a drummer and being in this band and then it was like you know take a step back and like you know build life somewhere else you know um because it was like um you know so life or death if I you know but it was my art you know this was my sort of this was my my life and my art so that's all I've been working on and to have it, like, blow up like that and to have some guy come in and say, uh-uh, this isn't telling me that these songs that we wrote, you know, I wasn't sounding good in my band and, um you know, th- this this is the way I play and this is my style and this is why whole sounds like it does is because, you know, I have this, I play drums like this. Eric plays guitar like that, you know, that, and Courtney sings like this. Um, And that's what it is. And, you know, to have somebody say, no, it's not going to be that. Then have my bandmates agree. (laughs) (laughs) What? You know, and because they all, you know, this was their art too. And they were, they wanted to move on to this next. And if it took, um, you know, having, you know, Joe, you know, metal hair guy come in and do the parts, they were cool with that. You know, which since then they've all like been like, you know, we shouldn't have done it, you know, but you know I shouldn't have um, spent you know six months in rehab either, and not been prepared. So everybody has a part in it. Yes, you know?
0: so. it, I guess I guess the thing is because cause I hadn't really realized the. The five year narrative of most bands or most lineups, you know, they, like I was saying, you know, you have like 12 months, 18 months, you know, making a bit of a sound and playing just in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you. And then you get those kind of (laughs) moments, can't you? Like, And like I said, you know, the John Peel play meant that, you know, because the other thing about that, which I know I keep on about at least twice anyway, but... There's always like each city would have or town would have a little kind of indie night or punk night. So you know Norwich had one, Leeds, Brighton, Bristol, et cetera, et cetera. you know. So you could you could literally get a, you know, a phone call as a band and say, "Oh, do you want to come play up in Liverpool on Monday the 13th?" And, you know, and it was like, "Well, we've got nothing else to do. We'll just get a van, we'll drive up, we'll play the gig, we'll come back." I mean, and so that organic kind of network developed and obviously that that would give bands that next step up and then you get the you know like that john peel session that first album it was often around the second album that things became a bit more complicated and a bit tricky and and what i found especially in uk bands if anybody ever goes to america they always come back and they split up quite instantly because the american touring is so horrible and i think they just also yeah. realize how much they hate each other as well so um right. so you you know you had a five-year period in in the band in a, in a way even though the band didn't you know in a weird way it was even worse because the band continued mm-hmm.
1: yeah and then i you know after that when i left the band i was you know i was um um addicted you know went right into my full on into my Drug addiction, and then kind of pretty much spun out into the world, um, and then had to, you know, you know, rebuild, um, and then you know, and then 2005, I got clean and sober, and then along the way, played in different bands here and there, and played again with Courtney, and, um, and it just sort of like re-evaluated everything as like, well, I. I like playing drums. I've been playing drums since I was, you know, 11 years old. And I wanted to get back to where that was like, that was fun to play. And I, you know, it was fun to play along to my records and it was, and I wanted to get back to that place. Um, And so, yeah, it took a while to do to just strip it all down and like get clean and sober and then just, you know, go play drums for fun. Um, Yeah, and then it you know that it changed, and I got back into you know liking playing drums. But you know, there's still I gotta say, there's still that like one little. It used to occupy a bigger space in my head, but there's still like one little corner of my brain that says you know that always thinks about. um, Am I good? Am I you know like is this right or is this wrong? How does this sound? You know that questioning um and it so I always it, there's if I want to be a great drummer I can be a great drummer I can just go in, and work really hard you know but in these days I like I like what I did you know and I like playing for fun yes and so you know
0: I and, do you, and do you feel over the years because obviously it takes a lot to um get yourself kind of sorted from those kind of addictions have you managed to make kind of peace with with that past
1: yeah I I you know with in my bandmates yeah um in you know, when I put together I did a documentary of a lot of old touring footage and that process brought me back to you know seeing Melissa and seeing Eric and seeing Courtney and kind of talking through some of the, the events, you know, um, and um, so just sort of having some kind of like the forgiveness for them and then them and me, because I'm sure I wasn't such a great person to hang out with when I was out of my mind, you know, yes. but um, yeah, so it, it's been, so it's been really great. We're all we were all kids too. We were really young and a lot <laughs> happened then. And so now we're like old people that go to farmers markets. You yes, know,
0: that's absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, yes, yeah. I know. Yeah. I mean, because interestingly, I'd I realise there's like um There's like a 25-, uh, 30-year-old, 30-year kind of space to reflect on things because I I noticed recently there was a film, like I mentioned, The Wedding Present, George Best, there's there's been one on the go-betweens and one on the slits and one on, um, oh, who's the other band? Oh, the Dolly Mixtures as well. Uh And and also The Chills, and The Chills are quite interesting because they're from New Zealand with Martin. Yeah,
1: Submarine Bells, was that the...? the great record yeah and yeah but,
0: um, oh my god they were amazing but when they did the documentary film which has only just come out if not and and it's kind of interesting because he he also had a quite heavy addiction so then he saw the film being then he saw the film and then he heard his bandmates giving their side of the story when he watched it right. and, and and that was kind of like for him an important thing to hear what they were doing and how they were going through it. Cause he was obviously this main person. So he, yeah. he had all the pressure. Then he had the addiction. Then he had horrendous illness cause he caught something from a needle that he shared with somebody. And that kind of completely screwed him up for years. And, um, mm-hmm. but then he's kind of managed to cl- get clean and then sort of doing the process of the film has kind of helped hoover away some of those cobwebs and demons. So that it is kind of a long-term process, isn't it, to get to that point?
1: Yeah, I had the same same experience with with my documentary. Hearing them talk to, you know, the the director and producer, David and Todd, that when uh, they would go and get do their interviews, and then I didn't really know what anyone had said or what anyone thought until we had our first you know, sort of rough edit together, and that was pretty. Amazing. You know, I really um, I appreciated hearing what the, what was happening on in their world when, you know, when all the difficult stuff was going down. Um, yeah. So yeah. and it's kind of yeah. um, it's amazing that, you know, it was kind of cool to see all that old footage and put it together. And, you know, because that's the document. This really this happened, you know, which was cool. I think there's some um, footage of Phoenix festival in 93 and you can see John Peel on the side of the stage watching
0: <laughs> well, that's I remember fantastic. that moment.
1: I remember that moment and going, Jesus, that's John Peel again. Oh, you know, him. one of yes. those freakouts. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think Julian Cope played the same show. He played that same year and he played later in the day. And I think there was some, you know, I think there was a maybe some talk between julian and courtney then but
0: um so, yeah, when, that was, so when the film when that idea of the film hit so hard came out or, or was going to first kind of spoken about were you were you keen for it to happen or were you a little bit sort of i don't know felt a bit sort of skeptical or felt yeah, a bit defensive
1: where, yeah totally i would never thought of doing that that was like uh my my own kind of private footage of stuff um and um but after i didn't i didn't wanna share all of it you know and then it, it was hard to watch you know all the footage like 40 hours of it to put together the film that was really difficult i'd go in and watch old you know footage and then step out into my normal life and be like wow like just kind of blown away like i'd go back in time for like an hour um and Yeah, I did. I just was always been kind of wary of that. But when I got clean, I thought about what what do I want to do with my work? Um, What do I so. I didn't want to I was playing in some bands, you know, but I just I felt like it would it would be something interesting to do eventually, you know, so we did put it together and I wanted to tell my part of my side of the story, you know, that about that, my, what, what the great parts and then, you know, yes, celebrity skin, you know, so that was, that felt, I felt good to be able to tell that.
0: Yes. And when, you, and, and just kind of not like nearly, but do you, I mean, is that the, is that the kind of your kind of that period you know, the celebrity skin, is that the sort of bit, the lowest point in, in your life? Was that the bit that you kind of had that big influence that you feel like it really needed to be sorted? Otherwise, you were never going to be free from it.
1: Yeah. And that was, I mean, I think that was just one more horrible event. You know, you when you, when, um <laughs> it, with with addiction, it's like, you're going to lose everything and, and like that cliche and I did, you know, and like my job in my band, I lost it. And so, and then it just got, there's even worse things past that. So, you know, that wasn't the worst. <laughs> and then, you know, and then to rebuild from there. But um, I have to tell you, I have to be on another call at two o'clock.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so sorry. Um yeah. So no, right. just lastly, what would you yeah. what would you say to a, an 18 year old self if you if you could have whispered something to that person, you yeah. know, when they were starting and you thought, hey, you know, what could I have said to them? You know, what would have you know, that you know, because your experience is quite extraordinary.
1: Yeah, uh, this is going to sound crazy, but practice. <laughs> <laughs> Play your drums all the time. You know, Yeah. I, I mean, just I, I think if I had it to do again, I think there would be, or if I was going to give advice, I definitely would have spent a lot more time um, just b- being a musician and not being, you know, the rock and roll person, you know, and like try to maybe focus a little more on the, um, by instrument. Yes. <laughs> um, but also, yeah, and um, and yeah, just uh, don't be a drug addict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it sounds so like
0: basic, but yeah. It's just that one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you because I I mean the other person I and band I love is is Motorhead, and I always like listen yeah, to yes. Lemmy's interviews. And obviously yeah. he, he was very straight about his drugs, wasn't he? He liked speed. Yeah. Yeah. But he hated heroin, didn't he? Yeah, yes. And
1: then didn't Belt the Animal, didn't he? Did he die of a speed addiction or is it...
0: Filthy. I don't know. I think he was actually just going... I think he... I think... um Oh, Fast Eddie died of pneumonia because that was kind of oh. got his lungs. I think actually, it might have been cancer. Actually, for Fast oh. Eddie, I think he was just very—he okay. was like an old little man, a bit like a bit like Lemmy looked in in his last year. He just had shrunk a lot, actually. So it was quite, um, yeah. Wow. But I just always remember his kind of attitude towards drugs, even though he must have drunk. Yeah, pregnant. there
1: was like a, a, you know, like that's a cool drug, but that's not a cool drug. That's you know, a- there's always that. You can drink, but you. Don't
0: do heroin. You don't know. do heroin. That's yeah. What? Yeah. Anyway, look. Thank you ever so much for your time for this. Yeah. And and amazing. Yeah. You're you're. Yeah. I have. To, I don't speak to many people who who know so much about the C eighty six cassette. Actually. I know.
1: And that's why I wanted to talk to you. Was because I was like C eighty six. Is this connected to? And then so that brought us together. Thank yeah.
0: You. Oh my God. Yeah. I've, you know that's been amazing. Well, look. Yeah. Take care. And. Yeah, you too. just you know, look after yourself through this period as well. And yes, just,
1: likewise, you know, be into, well.
0: Yeah, you too. Look, all the best for the year and uh, and the future. Yeah,
1: you too. Okay, Thank take you, care David. of yourself.
0: Bye bye. Bye. And that was me in conversation with Patty Schemel talking about life in music and life in general. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, the C86 show. If you want to contact me, you can. You can uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also all these um, various playlists and also interviews have been archived. And you can find those at Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do at C86show. They're all there. Anyway, thank you for listening. I will have more interviews lined up later.